Hi, I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir in Washington, D.C. today with three guests. Former First Lady of Virginia, Dorothy McAuliffe, who's been an amazing champion for Share Strength in our No Kid Hungry campaign and is now a fellow at Georgetown's Institute of Politics and Policy at the McCourt School of Public Service. And you're into that job for all of a three, week. Three days now, Three Billy. days. Yes. Dorothy, thanks for being here. Thank you. Uh, Chef Jason Alley, who has changed the food scene in Richmond and Virginia uh, and in other places with his restaurants, Comfort, Pasture, um, Flora, and is also a champion on hunger issues. And we're thrilled to have you here in Washington, Chef. Thanks. Happy to be here. Uh, and my colleague, Lisa Davis, who is the senior vice president of the No Kid Hungry campaign at Share Our Strength and an expert on lots of policy issues and is going to help us um, keep track of some of the specific outcomes that we've been able to achieve and uh, just fill us in on the importance of policy. Lisa, thanks for doing this. Oh, thanks, Billy. I'm excited to be here. So, Dorothy, I'm going to start with you. You know something that we have never talked about yet? Um because we always oh, well, we always talk about <laughs> we always talk about policy and school breakfast and schools and what's going on in Virginia. We've never really talked about like what was it like to be first lady. Now that you have three days distance from it or a week's distance from it, um, I'd really love to know. Just like when you walked into that governor's mansion, which you were kind enough to host the Share Strength board uh, at, uh, and it's just the history there and the yeah. power of a of a governor's office and your relationships with other. Uh, first spouses, but for you personally, just what was it like? Did you have any training? How do you learn what to do? Uh, well, that's a really good question. No, there is no training to be a, a first spouse of a governor. Um, that is for sure. I did uh, try to seek out some great mentors and friends that I had that had had that role before, uh, but it was um, exciting. It was thrilling. It was uh, We had a wonderful, amazing campaign, um, and to actually have achieved that goal and to have won and then to uh, be given the honor to represent all Virginians. It was a, a truly amazing personal experience for both my husband and for me and our, our children. We had two children that lived in the mansion with us, and, um, you know, they had a front row seat to amazing, amazing things, met amazing people over the four years. It's uh, You learn that um, nobody governs alone. There's a team, both an internal team at the governor's uh, office, um, and then you have amazing stakeholders and friends that we met along the way. Jason being one of them, our Share Our Strength team, who, um, you know, Terry and I have been lucky to know you, Billy, for a long, long time, but uh, just amazing advocates and partners, and uh, it really was just uh, the honor of a lifetime. We enjoyed every minute of it. And you kind of get to define the job as you wish, right? There's no real rules? Absolutely. The governor has to show up every day, and there's certain things he has to do every single day. Um, As a first spouse, you have the the opportunity to define your role, uh, to be as involved or not, as you like. Um, many you know, spouses across the country approach it differently. Uh, some have their own careers. Uh, it was a time in my life where I really wanted to be a part of the work that was being done uh, in the governor's office and be able to uh, forward the initiatives that uh, I could um, use my convening power to work on. And uh, it, was a, it was an incredible opportunity. But yes, there are no rules. <laughs> there is no defined role. And that's um, part of what allows for the creativity to come in um, for any uh, first spouse to use the use the role as they see fit, what serves their own personal purposes and the purposes for which um, they and their spouse chose to run. Uh, 
and one other part of this I want to ask you before I turn to Jason is, you know, boat owners say the two happiest days of their lives are the day they got their boat and the day they sold their boat. Is it like that with the governor's mansion? Are you and the kids happy to be out of there? Or no, you know, it, like? it really was um, just so many wonderful people. It, it is nice to be home, home, as we call it, and back in Northern Virginia. Um, we'll continue. To, I'll continue to work on the things that child hunger and uh, the things that are important to us. Um, no, we it, it's. Um, no, it, it, I wouldn't say yes. It's a, It was a natural transition. We always knew it was going to happen. We knew we had four years. There's a real sense of urgency. It's the only governorship in the country where it's a one-term only governor. So we hit the ground running, and we uh, didn't rest till the last day. And so I think it, it felt very natural. Yes, do we miss the people, that the friends we've made in Richmond and the team we had there? But, um, you know, we'll all be connected. But uh, no, I, I wouldn't say it was a relief or, we're, you know, it, we were just uh, – um, Happy that uh, we we had a great four years, and now it's on <clears throat> to, on to the next thing. Um, and we're going to come back and talk about that next thing at uh, Georgetown University's uh, School of uh, Policy and Politics, and also how you used that sense of urgency. Because at Share Strength, we work with a lot of governors and a lot of first ladies or first gentlemen. I don't know of anybody, Dorothy, who used that sense of urgency to accomplish more on behalf of those who are vulnerable and voiceless than you did. And it's just, you've, you've really, at Share Strength, you're a heroic figure and a role model yeah. to so many of us. So I just wanted to say thanks before we even get to that part of the conversation. It's very, very kind of you, <clears throat> but personally been so rewarding to have this partnership. So thank you. Chef Jason Alley, we know each other for some of the same reasons, because you're involved in hunger issues. You've been very supportive of Share Strength, and you've certainly been involved in things that Governor McAuliffe and... Uh, First Lady Dorothy McAuliffe were involved in. Um, you had maybe more training for your job than Dorothy did for hers <laughs> as a chef, or just just a little bit more, not know. a lot. Still feel seat of the pants pretty much every day. Um, How'd you become a chef? It was really, uh, I just fell into it. Um, I started cooking at a really young age. I was four when I started cooking at home. It's about um, as young as it gets, right? Yeah. Uh, when I see my children at that age, it's horrifying that... I was using hot pans, but... And was it a parent or grandparent that was an influence, or um, not really? A lot of it was kind of out of necessity, mm-hmm. um, and I had a real interest in it. Um, so I think it was partly if you wanted to eat, you kind of figured out how to make something to eat, because maybe parents weren't around as much. But they also encouraged. There were some guidelines. I couldn't cook bacon until I was five. It seemed <laughs> reasonable to everybody in the room at the time, I guess. Um, so I always loved food. Um, I grew up really food insecure and... Um, and hungry often, so food was really important. You know, it was um, in what part of Virginia? In southwestern Virginia. And the food insecurity was based on the economy there, or yeah. family situation, or both. Both. Uh-huh. Um, you know, family situation was less than ideal for sure, um, and not an area where there's rampant employment for sure. Um, so when you have these situations um, where you've got maybe some difficulties with your parental situation um, yep. with finding work, it makes it tough. So. I had my first job in restaurants when I was 10. I was living with my mom in Delaware and bus tables at a crab shack when I was 10. And at 10? At 10. Child, um, child labor laws notwithstanding. No, it was a friend who had a place. Um, so I did that. I worked fast food through high school, went to college um, at James Madison, and promptly failed out. There were too many other awesome things to do than go to class. So I started washing dishes at a country club, um, and I caught the bug. Fell in love with it. It was so nice to be able to be around these awesome cooks and 
Um, you hear these stories of people falling in love with the industry in their first job. And this was my first job in a real restaurant environment. Um, and I loved it. So I worked my way up to lead cook and then took my first executive chef job at 22, which no was kidding. And where far was that? too early. In Harrisonburg. Mm-hmm. It's a little bar and grill. Honestly, learned probably a lot more from messing up than I did from anything else. But it was a valuable learning experience. And then I just continued to work. I worked in Illinois when my wife was in grad school. We were in Atlanta for a while. And then moved back to Richmond about 17 years ago. Uh, I read an article in the Richmond Times-Dispatch in which you said there was, for you personally, there was a real emotion assigned to food. You said it's a really weird thing because I grew up food insecure. And if you've experienced hunger, it leaves an impression. It does. Um, it's a really lasting impression. And there's a there's a big difference and everybody's been hungry. I think most of us here probably skip breakfast, right? Um, but there's a difference in that. That's why I think it, food insecurity is an important word. There's a lot of gradations in that. But that lack of security is really what kind of hangs on. Really, um, for me, created a lot of value in food. Maybe some unreasonable connections to it in some ways. But because food wasn't around all the time, it was also a really important thing for us. When things were good... And parents weren't fighting, and there was money around, and food was something that we really, really celebrated. It was always a really important thing. Is um, that is that in your consciousness today, or your subconscious, or how yeah, do you, both. I mean, you still stay connected to that impulse and that feeling. A hundred percent. You know, it's one of those things that a lot of parents have that that defining moment where they're like, "When I have kids, I am not going to do X, Y, or Z, right? Or I'm going to make sure that these set of things happen." And so it's a really constant thing for me. You know, I know that it's survivable and that there are lessons to be learned from it. But as a parent of now four kids, um, it's constant. It's a constant reminder to me of what that felt like as a kid and making sure that my kids don't experience that. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. hopefully many, many, many more kids um, in the community and around the country. I mean, that's what we're here to talk about. So, Dorothy, as a mom of five kids... Um, you guys have nine kids between you. Wow. Uh, that's a lot of, okay. we got a lot of, got a lot of parental <laughs> expertise in this room. And Lisa's got four. Yeah. I've got three. Okay. Um, Dorothy, as a mom of five kids, I've often heard you say that, you know, you've also thought about, you know, your kids have been fortunate and blessed and never had to experience hunger. But as a mom, you have this instinct about the issue. That instinct would also apply, I'm assuming, to lots of other things like healthcare and education and so forth. How did the hunger issue become so prominent for you as First Lady, and how did you decide to, you know, mobilize your considerable resources around it? Well, so on the personal level, I just knew that when I became a mom, it was a very striking thing for me to realize that this one being was solely dependent on me and my caregiving and my being able to nurture and provide for our oldest daughter, and recognizing that the consuming need every day from the time she was first born up until she left for school and then on through her life is is food. It's the most basic mm. human need that needs to be met every single day, both in terms of just feeling secure and being able to function, but to thrive and to be nurtured, you know, to grow and to grow strong. And so um, I guess when looking uh, at Terry's opportunity to really look at challenges and solve problems on a statewide level, recognizing that agriculture was the number one is the number one private industry in Virginia. His focus was on growing the economy, jobs and opportunity for all. Um, 
looking at agriculture and then recognizing that there is this need. Over 300,000 food insecure Virginia children at the time we were running for office. Luckily, we've reduced the number by a little now with the work that we've done to just over 250,000. But even one child on one day experiencing hunger and food insecurity in our commonwealth or our country is one too many. So thinking about growing the economy, jobs, and and Terry's focus on that, we knew that investing in things like public education and health care, workforce development, were all the ways we were going to get to a thriving economy for all Virginians. And yet we can't get there if we're not meeting children's basic needs every day when they walk in the door to go to school, to learn, to get that education that's going to lead to that job. So you were out among Virginians every, almost every day for four years talking to them about lots of things on their minds. Is the hunger issue understood? Is it hidden? Is it, did you have to sell it? Well, I think on the cam- when we were talking about it on the campaign, it, you know, some of the reactions there were, um, oh, you're going to talk about that? Like, that's not really a thing? Or there was a real lack of awareness or maybe this isn't something we want to talk about as Virginians, right? That we have this this uh, stigma, this, this reality that we have these children in need. Um, and so I wouldn't, I would say that with the work of a lot of us, that we've really grown awareness um, on the issue. And I think it's a national issue that people are talking about. So I'm not going to just say it's a Virginia, you know, hooray us. We've really raised the level of awareness. But um, what I have found is that 13 million children across this country, um, the work that you do every day, you and Lisa and your team, in raising that awareness is something that once we tell the story, uh, we don't find any pushback. We find more that it is not a political issue, it's a bipartisan mm-hmm. issue. This is something everybody cares about. And so we've done that in Virginia and we're doing it across the country. And I'm really honored to be a part of the work. Let's talk about some of the ways that you're both uh, addressing this issue. I know, Chef, that you're involved with uh, the Feed More Food Bank in Richmond, which is, I think, yep. is one of the largest in the country. Um, and, Dorothy, you've been involved in both legislative and policy issues. Lisa Davis, who's here, used to be at Feeding America, so understands the emergency food assistance in the, the, the food bank world uh, probably better than any of us, and now is also involved in policy. Talk, Chef, about some of the things that you've been involved in. And then, uh, Dorothy, I want to hear from the policy side how you've been able to have an impact? You know, I think that Dorothy touched on probably the most important thing, which is awareness. We're a mom and pop shop. We have three restaurants, but, you know, we're not able to to write a massive check. We can't give $100,000 to the food bank twice a year. But what we can do is use our platform to do good work and to bring attention to these issues. Um, one of the things that we do, we do a big chef dinner every year where we have chefs come in from all over the country and 100% of the proceeds go to Feed More. And I speak at that every year, and I talk about my story, and the level of sometimes confusion, sometimes shock on people's faces when they realize that, that you know, I'm the face of hunger. This, you know, doesn't look like I've missed a whole lot of meals recently. Um, but that a guy who's out in the public light, who's seemingly successful... Um, Had dealt with hunger at one point in his life. 100%. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the best thing that I personally can do to get that message out is to have people understand that, you know, it's not the people who are in the low-income housing projects exclusively. It's not the people who are in deep rural southwestern Virginia or on the eastern shore. You know, it's everywhere. It's your neighbor. Um, You know, the face of hunger is just looking in the mirror sometimes. It can be anybody. So that awareness raising is huge. 
So that's something that we try and do consistently throughout the year is do these awareness campaigns. And, you know, if we can throw some money, then that's great, too. But really, the key is getting people to understand the need and how big that need is. And it seems to me that you you have a voice that uh, adds something special because people expect the first lady or the governor to talk about issues like this. They Mm -hmm. expect advocates to talk about it. But they don't, as you were saying, they don't expect a successful chef necessarily to be talking about it from the point of view of personal experience. And although you describe it as kind of a mom and pop operation, you're really credited with changing the food scene in Richmond. Um, I mean, it's, it's not 30 restaurants, it's three, but it really did. It might did, be Lily Gilding, it, but I appreciate it. It's widely viewed as having changed the food scene. So I think you do have a, a platform probably that a lot of folks don't there, have. There is. And it, part of it for for us, my partner, Michelle, and I, um, and all the restaurants, and our other partner, Jay, and, and one of our restaurants, you know, it's important for us to be welcoming to everybody. And that means people that we don't necessarily agree with politically. So we don't maybe go out and wave every flag that we can possibly wave. This is an issue that is wildly important. It is nonpartisan. Nobody should get their hackles raised up about feeding hungry kids. Yeah, you would think. You would, yeah, think. You would think. I know. Um, it doesn't always go the way that you would want it to go. But, you know, we do recognize that we have this opportunity to draw attention to things that, that really matter and that as a community we can impact. Um, it's inexcusable that we have hungry people. In a, in a country that's this wealthy, that produces this much food, that we have 13 million hungry children, not to mention the adults, is it's embarrassing. It's a travesty. And it's entirely fixable. And before I ask Dorothy to talk about some of the strategies that we've employed, and Lisa as well, um, say just a little bit and describe for folks who don't know what Feed More is, uh, how that organization sure. works. Sure. So, so Feed More is our sort of umbrella company, anti-hunger um, group in the greater Richmond area. So their territory is pretty big. It goes to, I think, Williamsburg to the North Carolina border to just our side of Charlottesville and north to Fredericksburg. So it's a really big territory, very diverse. It's a huge program. So they encompass community kitchen, meals on wheels. Um, they do summer feeding and backpack programs, and it's also our community food bank. So it's a really so a very comprehensive it's a suite very, of services. It's a very, very comprehensive suite of services, absolutely. And it's it's become really sophisticated over the last few years. Um, they've spent a lot of time really digging into research, really digging into how to accurately get the message to their donors and people who need that message. And it varies. You know, they've been really, really good about segmenting different categories of people so that the message resonates with them. So there's a lot of really wonderful tools that the, that they've developed. Um, it's great, and they're really efficient. You know, they feed a lot of people, um, but it costs a lot of money to do. Lisa, is that typical or atypical to see that comprehensive a suite of services available? I think it's becoming more typical. Uh, if you talk to any food bank leader in America, they'll voice a lot of frustration that um, as they get more efficient, the need continues to grow or at least stagnate. Um, and so many of them are taking on innovative new programs. There's a lot of work in the health and hunger space, partnering with um, health systems, um, a big move to more nutritious food, Mm -hmm. and really using data to identify where the need is in their communities and then to think holistically about the types of programs that can help not just get emergency food to people, but also kind of move them on a a greater path to self-sufficiency. Dorothy, one of the reasons that we've been able to really impact big numbers of kids in Virginia is because we've used policy to kind of scale up some of these good ideas. Um, Describe some of the kind of strategies that you've really been the leader of in Virginia and that other, I think, states are now looking to to see how they can copy. 
Oh, well, uh, you know, we, we made a big push um, on the school breakfast piece, and that's probably been our greatest success. Ten million more school breakfasts over the last four years since the year that we started. These are kids who were getting school lunch but were not getting school breakfast. Exactly. So real big push to make sure that breakfast participation was, uh, you know, robust and available and accessible for these kids who relied on uh, free and reduced lunch. <clears throat> what was the key to getting more of them into breakfast? So the key... Here's the enigma is that the federal resources, and this is what you've taught me, share strength, and what I've learned along the way is that these child nutrition programs have been in place for decades, and school breakfast, decades now, but very underutilized. And um, so what we did was put uh, $2.7 million in the governor's biennial budget to help schools, to help um, provide a little bit of state assistance to help unlock the change in the in the breakfast model and how breakfast was served. We call it breakfast after the bell, alternative breakfast. So really making breakfast more available. Sometimes it takes just a little bit of extra money in that school cafeteria budget to provide breakfast carts or iPads to to make the point of sale more accessible so the kids don't all have to go to the cafeteria before breakfast but actually can grab breakfast on their way to the classroom or have breakfast in the classroom. And that is a game changer. It's a game changer uh, for for the schools, for the students, for teachers, um, because it means everybody has that real opportunity to start the day off strong. So we were joking before we started that we didn't have breakfast, many of us, I won't name names this morning. <laughs> um, and it's because it's that rush out the door, right? right? But by the time we get to where we need to be, we're hungry. And it's many, it's, it's that way for kids as well. You know, the kids are beholden to us to make sure that their day, that they have mm-hmm. what they need, and uh, so the school breakfast funding, $2.7 million in the governor's budget, brought down an additional $22 million for school breakfast uh, in the $22 million dollars of federal, federal money funds. that was set aside just to make sure kids eat breakfast. And it's available. It, it's, it's waiting in Washington, D.C. for schools to draw down on these USDA funds that reimburse schools for feeding kids lunch and breakfast and after-school meals and summer meals. And so we went about uh, working with you know, encouraging school districts and school nutrition directors to say, we'll work with you, we'll help you, we'll provide the technical assistance, how do we get the funds, how do we switch the model so we can increase participation, and we did. And uh, we have still work to do, but the other thing it does is it destigmatizes for those kids um, who need school breakfast, they don't have to self-identify, walk into a cafeteria early, before the bell, get their breakfast, it's part of the school day. They're all eating together They're now all eating together. What, it doesn't matter who your parents are, what their jobs are, what their income is. If you miss breakfast for any reason at home, and many kids still eat breakfast at home, and, and that's great. But if you missed it at home or you don't have access to it at home, you have it at school. And that's uh, – we've seen teachers talk about it, gained instructional time and um, – uh, it's it's just a win-win all the way around. Now, most folks would have thought that feeding kids in the classroom would have cost instructional time, but you're saying that it's actually increased it. That has been our experience consistently, mm-hmm. is that kids get to the classroom on time, they're ready and eager to sit with their friends, start the day doing a little schoolwork, a little mm-hmm. reading, or a little less, like planning out the day, having sharing breakfast, and they're ready to go. Um, it's a long time till lunch in many, of the, in many mm-hmm. school schedules. And so um, this we have he- heard consistently from teachers who may not have been open to a change in routine um, that actually this has made a real difference. And they, they see hunger. 
in their in their classrooms. They see the food insecurity. Many teachers are buying food for their kids out of their own pocketbooks. And um, so we have found this to be overwhelmingly a well-received plus and, and for, for kids and parents and teachers. You introduced Lisa and I to a principal from Southwest Virginia named Pam Davis who talked about the conditions that so many of these kids come from, whether it's homes that have been touched by opioid addiction or unemployment, mm-hmm. lack of sufficient health care. One of the things she said that day that you introduced us to her was that um, she said our ability as educators to get a single, have these kids take home a single point fact lesson instruction uh, drops down to zero if their basic needs haven't been met. Can you say a little bit about the condition that some of these kids are coming to school from? Well, you know, it is um, a depressed economy in in many parts of um, you know, Virginia, not everywhere, but, you know, certainly pockets of poverty and real need and, and job insecurity and, uh, and of course, the opioid addiction uh, crisis that you mentioned. These kids um, need adults in their lives to, to, to meet these basic needs. Um, Pam and her team, they have a washing machine and dryer in, right outside of her office. At because, the school? At the school. Um, because these kids, are, they're not getting their clothes washed not, at home. Their clothes just Which is something apart. that I would never think of. Probably. No. Wow. And, and it's not just Southwest Virginia. Um, you know, we, we see, we hear these stories of um, just extreme poverty uh, all across the country and all across Virginia. But the, these teachers are, you know, taking kids to eye doctor appointments or, you know, focusing on dentists, dental health. Um, and uh, as you said, these are children and we just have to do everything we can. We can invest in all the public education and great teachers that we we have the resources for. But if we're not meeting children's basic needs, that's number one fundamental pillar of education is you, you have you cannot teach a child if they're if they're anxious, if they're ill, if they're hungry. Um, and so that's what that's what these teachers are doing. And uh, and we can provide the resources to help with one of those most basic human needs, the, the a food and a good meal every day, three times a day. And that's what we have to do. Lisa, is this the kind of thing that any state in the country should be able to do? I mean, this sounds manageable. It sounds like there's not enough attention being paid everywhere because kids are voiceless often politically. But couldn't every state be following Virginia's lead? Absolutely. And um, I think we've talked a lot about Dorothy's leadership in the state of Virginia, which has been tremendous. But she's also... um, been a leader in inspiring governors and first ladies in other states to kind of take up the mantle and leverage these programs and make progress in this area. Um, as part of the National Governors Association role that the McCulloughs had, they had a whole session on ending childhood hunger with the governors that were there that led to a learning lab. And as a result, we're seeing states like New York, Governor Cuomo, including um, Breakfast After the Bell in his State of the State address. And and kind of charging his legislature to get that done. So I think the beauty of childhood hunger solutions is that in the U.S. we do have the programs, as you and Dorothy mentioned. They exist. They're available in every community across America, and they're underutilized. But the barriers um, may seem huge, but there are a lot of um, strategies and ways to remove them, as, as Dorothy's done in Virginia, 
And so I think by sharing the Virginia experience, the lessons learned, we can help remove those barriers in other communities. And there's certainly not a state in America that can't end childhood hunger and can't make sure every child is getting breakfast, lunch, after-school meals, and summer meals. Let's talk a little bit about how we use the platforms we have, because, Chef, when you host a dinner and bring chefs from all over the state or from other states as well, you're basically creating more Jason Alleys who care about this issue, right? Yeah, uh, that's the hope. You're kind of educating them, and have you seen other chefs kind of get turned on to this and start to do what you're doing? Uh, a little bit. You know, they're... they're Share our strength has always had a great relationship with chefs. Um, you know, hunger is something that makes sense to a lot of us. I mean, we're dealing with food every day. So we it's a natural part of who we are and that sort of that drive to feed people. So the the Taste of America events, the the my first Share Our Strength event was in nineteen ninety nine in Atlanta. Um there's always been good connection there. I feel like there unfortunately I feel like there are a lot of chefs and I'm sure it expands into other industries as well, who are hesitant to use their platform um, because they're worried about alienating guests. They're worried about their bottom line. I mean, they have their families to think of, and also we employ 90 people. So we have to think about their their people. Um, it's something that I'm really trying to work hard on with my colleagues and my peers in the industry is to understand the platform that we have. The restaurant industry is wildly charitable. Um, Lots and lots of donations to lots and lots of things. But f but encouraging chefs, restaurant owners, front of house managers, sommeliers to really take this platform that we have and focus that energy on whatever it is that matters to them. You know, for me and for my partner, Michelle, it's about childhood hunger um, because we know that viscerally. We actually really understand that. Um, but trying to get that reticence um, off the plate for, for chefs and people in the industry I think is really important. Like I said, wildly charitable. I do think there's some hesitance to, to put things out there. It's a really politically volatile climate right now. I mean, you know, you don't need me to tell you guys that. It's pretty it pretty obvious. Um, and so I, I think that that really kind of leads to the hesitation as well. And, um, you know, in a low margin business, there's always that concern of, well, is this going to, you know, how is this going to benefit us? And um, it's really beneficial to us. I mean, it, you know, that sort of... Um, you know, where the private industry and the charitable component meet can be really great for everybody. Um, it gives us good visibility, which is great for the business, which allows us to then do more good things and impact more people. Um, and it really works hand in hand really well for us. Um, so that's more my push right now is just to let people understand how important their voice is and, and how loud it can be. Dorothy, one of the ways I've seen you, you using your platform is it seems like on an almost weekly basis when you were uh, in, in the governor's mansion and when uh, your husband Terry was governor, you would be at a school, you'd be with the principal, you'd be with the superintendent, and next thing you'd see the next morning is an article in the paper and a photograph that lets a lot of people understand that this is an issue and that it's solvable. Um, so that kind of the bully pulpit um, is important as well, right? Absolutely, and and that's uh, that's certainly one thing you have and one thing that I learned how to use, um, I think, if I can say anything about... Uh, Defining that role as, as, as a first spouse is that uh, I learned pretty early you do have an opportunity. You have an opportunity with this bully pulpit to raise awareness um, and to elevate the work of those who have been working at this for a long, long time. So our school nutrition directors, uh, school, our, 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 our cafeteria staffs have been in this work 
um, but really largely unrecognized or perhaps uh, maybe um, characterized in a humorous way, the lunch lady thing or the school meal, you know, like Mm -hmm. degraded almost. And, you know, listen, these are amazing chefs, school chefs who are working on pennies a day to feed and nourish children. Um, And I have met the most creative, uh, dedicated group of of people who are committed to children and to to making sure they have uh, enough and the right things to eat. So it's been wonderful to be able to highlight that work um, and to also connect that work to educational outcomes. We all know that nutrition is important and vital to health and to strength and to growing, um, developing brains and minds and bodies. But the it, when we connect it to the educational outcomes, we see in our first year funding where we flipped the most schools, we saw um, 54% of those schools who had flipped to an alternative breakfast saw an improvement in uh, one or more of the SOL scores, those are the standards of learning scores, the, the standardized testing that um, is the benchmark, um, sadly, uh, although we're changing that too. That's not the only benchmark in Virginia for educational outcomes. But um, when we are able to connect those types of data points and, and so that everyone understands this is not just a government handout, not just a government program, this is really these are investments in education. These are investments in uh, job opportunities for, for kids in their career path as they advance K-12 and on to, you know, if it is college, if it is a certification, whatever it is, that, you know, every day builds upon itself in education. Every day is important to a child, not just SOL day. And it's, a, it's something we, um, you know, we started with at the beginning four years ago. You know, everyone in education understood, parents, teachers, administrators, uh, that schools generally found a way to serve breakfast to every child on testing day. Um, but we say that's important every day. So you're able to draw a direct line, close to a direct line, between the school breakfast programs and the test results. Right. 54% yeah. of the schools that engaged in the program had better scores. That's pretty amazing, particularly at a time when so many people are talking about with, you know, close to full employment, the the challenge of finding qualified, mm-hmm. you know, well trained, well skilled employees. So yeah. this could this could really have serious ramifications. Absolutely. And we have to remember where these programs came from in the first place, right? You know, admirals and generals went to Congress, you know, after World War II and said, We have to have healthy vibrant youth in this country, or we're not being able to defend our national security and our economic security. It all depends on making sure that next generation is healthy, is educated, and is uh, productive. And and, um, and that's that's really, if you want to think big picture and get out of the, the nitty-gritty of the day, every which is what I focus on. I think, Jason, we focus on each and every child. That's what you all focus on, not one hungry child. But let's look at the big picture for the country and for our future as a nation. And we can't afford uh, to have hungry kids, and uh, it just isn't who we are as a nation either. It's not our value system. So um, it can seem political because it is a government program, but these government programs are are, are foundational, foundational in taking care of our most vulnerable population. And uh, I'd like to also mention that, you know, in Northern Virginia, one of our most wealthy counties is Fairfax County. We have 180,000 students in that district, over 180,000. This is the Washington suburbs of Fairfax County. Washington suburbs, right, Mm -hmm. Fairfax County, and one of the highest performing school districts in the country. Um, And yet, 27%, which seems like a low rate of free and reduced lunch, um, 
that means 54,000 children who are relying on school right. meals and relying on us as adults to make those meals work and available and accessible, truly accessible mm-hmm. for them. And and it is working. They have a great school nutrition director there, Rodney Taylor, one of our friends who um, is also making the important connection to food and nutrition and how are we teaching kids about what they're eating. And are we able, if we have robust uh, cafeteria programs, are we able to source more local nutritious um, foods and teach kids about the value of that and well as well as a win-win for our farmers, right? Those, that, those dollars are going back into our farm economy and help in boosting our rural economies who are growing uh, food for us. So those are important lessons for children too when we focus on the learning piece that, mm-hmm. of, of making food available. I think you, Dorothy, and you, Chef, would have both been fascinated by guests we had on just a couple of weeks ago in Boston, Jill Shaw and Laura Benavides. In uh, Boston, has for the last 15 years, has been getting all of its school meals from Long Island, okay? Cooked there, frozen, maybe um, who knows how long later, put on a truck and, and thawed because they have no kitchens in Boston public schools. They just have a place to kind of reheat or thaw, oh. and the infrastructure is very old. And it was some chefs who got together went to the mayor, went to the school district, and said, we can build kitchens in Boston public schools. And the mayor said, no, that'll cost about a million. These schools are old. They'll cost about a million dollars to retrofill and build a kitchen. They did them for $65,000 sure. each because the chefs knew how to do it. Yep. So very powerful. But the, this notion of actually cooking real food for our kids uh, is something that I also I think could, could take place in a lot of, a lot it, of states. It's huge. You know, um, when I talk to people about the work that, that we do through the restaurants for um, – for all sorts of anti-hunger stuff. They're like, oh, so it's about getting healthier food in the schools. I'm like, well, sure. But really, right now, it's also just about getting food into the schools. Um, if you're hungry, you can't learn. If you're hungry, your behavior is often terrible because you're anxious or you're restless or all of these things, which in turn makes it harder to learn and it makes it harder for other kids in the classroom to learn. And it's just this huge spiral. So as important as that nutrition is, sometimes just not being hungry is a huge step in that. So um, they all can work together really well. Um, but just, you know, making sure that there's a muffin in the morning, you know, and, and you you touch on, too, is removing that stigma. And that's something that the Breakfast After the Bell really does. Richmond Public Schools, where my children are in school, is free breakfast, free lunch for everybody. When I was growing up, even though it was a very poor rural area, you still had free lunch cards. So there were often times where I didn't eat lunch because I didn't want to go through the line and have to punch my card. So anything that we can do in the school systems to also decrease the stigma is massive. So if everybody's on the same playing field. So it's universal in Richmond public schools. And that must I'm assuming that's because there's a certain percentage of kids mm-hmm. in the public school program who are free or reduced price. So they said make it universal to... Correct. Probably even less expensive than trying to screen out the small number that could afford it, but it also takes away the stigma. Which Correct. Is, and so, how, how many school districts do that? Make it universal. Do Do we know? Is that typical yeah. too? Across the country? Yeah. Um, I don't know across the country. I do know that we've increased the number of just eligibility by two hundred ninety seven percent in Virginia, because there is that administrative burden. We've all heard about the lunch shaming and the things that go on mm-hmm. with when we're trying to administratively hold kids accountable for, in, you know, uh, paying for, for school lunch. And so it makes so much sense, reduces the paperwork yeah. on schools and provides this destigmatized environment where everyone eats at no cost. And uh, 
So we've really made a big push for that um, in Virginia. I don't know how many across the country. I don't know. I, I do know that from our experience of when my kids went to middle school, it was our first public school experience. And um, we had homeschooled for a couple of years. So we were a little anxious. And so we're doing the whole school tour. Brave. You're a brave man. My wife is a brave woman. Um, <laughs> I stay pretty busy at the restaurants. So that was all her. She's very brave. Um, but so, of course, I went to tour the cafeteria and... Um, the vice principal that was showing us around was like, you know, everybody eats lunch free, everybody eats breakfast free. Like, oh my God, that's amazing. Really hit home for me. But he was like, also, if your kids need to pack a lunch, have them get a tray anyway. It's like, we need to keep our numbers up because at that point, the school was really, really low enrolled. Mm-hmm. It's like, and more importantly than keeping the numbers up to make sure that our cafeteria staff has work, there's going to be some kid there that, you know, one slice of pizza is not enough. Get the tray. Make sure that they're sharing their food with other people at the table, other kids that are, are hungrier. Get that, share it, spread it. And I was I was really, really moved. Like, I actually had to kind of step out of the room because I was tearing up quite a bit. But I was like, that's so impactful. And the fact that these teachers and administrators who are on the, you know, on the ground level with these kids see that, recognize it, and are doing just even such a small step as that to make sure that everybody gets as much as they can and enough um, without the stigma was was huge. Um, and it tells you how heavily they weigh that issue in 100%. the mix of what they're trying to achieve in terms yep. of education outcomes. Um, so, Dorothy, when you think about what you've achieved as First Lady of Virginia, um, Hypothetically, if you were first lady of the United States, um, couldn't that? Really. I mean, I know your husband's shy and retiring, and that, you know he wouldn't even think about that. But, um, but you have had a, an impact beyond the state of Virginia, uh, and a lot of it's been through governors and their spouses. Talk a little bit about how you've reached out. I feel like um, the National Governors Association itself has been a showcase for Virginia in a very positive way, and I know that there was a meeting that we did that had, well, I, I would say we've heard from probably a dozen governors in the last year who were at an NGA meeting and they heard what Virginia was doing and they said, can we can, can we do this in our state? So talk about how you envision helping expand this outside of Virginia. So, well, I am honored to continue the work with you all. Um, this is just, uh, you know, the most important work I can think of is to make sure that we're ending childhood hunger in our country and that we're creating opportunity, economic, real opportunity for for our next generation. And so I will continue to work with, uh, with Share Our Strength and travel the country and talk to whoever will listen in a governor's office, the first spouse office, in the superintendent's office. We found great, tremendous success with our superintendents. So when you reach that top level of decision-making, um, that's where the leadership can really trickle down and, and, and change the game. Um, you know, our principals, you've mentioned a few, um, you know, those leaders, we, uh, we'll talk to anybody and uh, because we have in the experience that says this is doable. It's uh, not a lot of resources. It's just a lot of uh, conversation, boots on the ground. It truly is a campaign. This No Kid Hungry campaign is a campaign, very much like a political campaign. You have to talk to a lot of people. You get buy-in. You get got to persuade, persuade, um, provide the technical assistance so that um, we under you know our school districts are are overtasked. There's no doubt about it that you know schools are under resourced in many many ways, um, uh, administratively, teacher shortages, all of it. And so we are actually 
providing a resource to increase educational opportunity for these students. So uh, we're bringing food in. We're actually also talking about the Boston experience, and we've seen this in Virginia. We're creating jobs in our cafeteria programs as well, that when you expand You've got to hire more people, right? These are You've got to hire more people. Um, we're, as we said, purchasing in the local community. And, and so what governors see and the opportunity is that this is um, one of these programs, this federal program, these child nutrition programs that Benef- that that have such wide-reaching um, spurring of of economic growth and activity, it, whether it's the educational outcomes for the kids, growing oppor- employment opportunities in our cafeterias, the local purchasing of food, um, and it's it's a win-win all the way around. And we're doing the right thing by our next generation and making sure that no child goes hungry. So, I w- am excited to be um, continuing the work and going to spread the word of, about our success in Virginia other states that have had success, um, and to just, you know, governors have a lot of things on their plates, literally, so to speak. So do superintendents, a lot of a lot of priorities. Uh, but when we can focus in and say, look, this here's a win and an easy win. It may take a little, a little effort, but it's and generally in speaking in terms of political gains and wins, this is... This is a win-win because it is nonpartisan, and we we see it. We've seen it in Virginia. We've got uh, we've had bipartisan support for this um, the work that we've done on the governor's budget and on food access in general. We put in a food bank tax credit so that farmers who donated to food banks um, got a little bit of a credit for gleaning their fields and turn, giving their donating their seconds and thirds, things like that. This is uh, hunger touches every community, rural, urban, suburban, and. Uh, I'm just uh, very excited to continue the work with Share Our Strength and to uh, continue to travel the country and, and raise awareness and, and raise awareness of the opportunity that is right there in front of us all, that the funding is there. We just need to tap into it. Dorothy, when you talk about um, all the reasons that this should happen, including that it's just the right thing, I was I was meeting last week with this very experienced philanthropic uh, leader and evaluator of, of outcomes. And her name is Kelly Fitzsimmons, and she's in Boston with an organization called Project Evident. And one of the things she said to me, she said, is I, you know, I know you're getting improved test scores. I know you're employing more people in the cafeterias. She said, you shouldn't even have to argue that. It's just basically the right thing. The fact that more kids are eating breakfast and lunch, everyone should understand that that's good. <laughs> period. Uh, now, I think it's great that we have all these benefits, and I'm the right. first to say that I think we need to make a stronger case because not enough Americans are making these connections, so we have to help make them for them. But when you think about it, it is it is pretty basic, right? Most people should just understand kids being fed is good, and you don't really, you shouldn't have to go farther than that. You shouldn't, but if the information is there, and it's tangible and it's real, right, it helps. And there are these other ancillary benefits. I mean, it, it's ridiculous not to put those on the table because some people do need a little push or prod because, it, like you said, it's it's the government. So it sort of de facto becomes a political issue. So if there's any way that you can round, like smooth those edges out a little bit for some people, I think that makes the conversation a little bit easier, whether okay. it should be or not. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. we all agree that, yeah, it's a really foundational, basic, decent thing to do. Um but the real data is there for the other successes that come along with it. So, I mean, that's that's the thing. We're really trying to fight this fight is, like, get it all out there to them. Get them every bit of information and let them see the net positive. You can't give me an argument, okay, that says there's a reason that we're going to let children go hungry. So whether it's your, you know, more of a 
per, you're coming from it from a personal responsibility and, you know, why are these parents not feeding their children? That's not really the point. If you're coming to it from that point, the point is children are hungry and look at all these economic outcomes that we get, these positive, mm-hmm. you know, yep. uh, uh, outcomes on the other side. If you don't, if you can't get there on just a hungry child and, and I would say that people do have particular filters that they process uh, policymaking through. And uh, so we have to come up with, we have to rebut every every argument. And we we have we have those rebut, <laughs> we have the evidence, and we have the outcomes, and we have the stories in Virginia. And uh, I'm really looking forward to continuing to tell that story until we don't have one hungry child in the United States of America. Dorothy, what was your secret to being so effective in a bipartisan way? Right. So Virginia is really it's such a fascinating place to be doing this work because it's almost like two states. Mm-hmm. You know, you're talking about northern Virginia and the economic growth here and some of the poverty in southwest. Uh, and ve- the legislature was, you know, pretty evenly divided, although mostly Republican until the last election. How did you work so effectively in a bipartisan fashion? Because that's something that it seems like our country is desperate to figure out. We're having this conversation the morning after the government reopened um, for many reasons that having to do with partisanship. How did you pull it off? Well, I, I, I'm not sure. You know, we're always working at it. We haven't <laughs> pulled it off completely, but I, I do think we found bipartisan success because there is this basic understanding of, of humanity, and no matter um, which end of the spectrum you come from, we're talking about children. We're talking about those who are vulnerable and are not making their own decisions about, um, you know, how they get to school, what's in their pantry, and and what's available to them. I think basically asking for conversations, asking to meet, asking to doing the homework, um, not expecting that because I had this uh, banner of First Lady beside my name that I was entitled to anyone agreeing with me. Uh, We did the homework and we did the work and uh, we found our champions on both sides of the aisle. And uh, it isn't a political matter when you're talking about job security, food insecurity, food access. And when we didn't paint it in partisan terms as we're going to, you know, we're on this moral high ground and we're going to take this win, but we're going to actually do the work. We're going to meet with principals and teachers and go to these uh, delegates and state senators' uh, districts and meet with their school boards, meet with their mayor, meet with um, their superintendents. Um, I think we we got a lot of buy-in just for doing the work and having the conversations mm-hmm. and going to to meet the need where it was and not to assume that uh, sitting in Richmond or coming to share our strength in the nation's capital that we we have all the policy answers and this is just the right thing to do. But it was really creating uh, buy-in through conversations and visits and um, meetings that uh, I think we built trust and, and understanding and um, – I'm not saying it was all perfect, but there's also a great respect, actually, in state. And I think this is true across state legislators. Some are, some now are unfortunately more partisan than others. But I think that generally, I would say, legislators are there, no matter where their political background, uh, they're there f- to do good. They're there for public service. They're they really want they to. They start out that way. They start it's out been that my way. Experience. Right. And when it comes to children and families in their own districts, you know, they see what we all see. And so that's uh, if you're going to do a good job as a public servant and a representative, you've you've got to try to solve the challenges that your your constituents are facing. 
And so um, by going at it with all these different ways of, um, I think we we were able to gain some recognition that this wasn't about a political win. This was just about doing the right thing for kids. Yep. I think you gained a lot of recognition of that um, in the state of Virginia. Well, thank you. Um, Keep going. Let's talk for uh, all three of you about what's next. For you as a chef, Dorothy, for you at Georgetown's Institute of Politics and Policy, and Lisa in terms of the No Kid Hungry campaign. Uh, any new restaurants uh, on the horizon? Anything you can tell us about uh, that's coming up? We do have another restaurant that we're opening because oh. I'm a glutton. Um, when? Well, you know, it's okay. the restaurant construction world, so, so who knows? Um, we're hoping late spring, early summer. Okay. Um, we're doing a big uh, brewery, arcade, restaurant, um, really big space in this developing former commercial and warehouse district called Scott's Edition in Richmond that's exploding and becoming really, really highly developed. Um, so we're really excited about that. Um, and then some things I can't get too deep into, but our our next phase right now is really trying to make a move that we can do more, that permanently we can do more good and more impactful work to fight hunger um, directly in our communities. So my partner Michelle and I are working with some really smart people, um, some of which you know, um, to kind of help firm all that up so that we can do something that's going to continue for longer than just, you know, our, a restaurant To be more sustainable. Life. To yeah. be sustainable and to, be, to, to make some real impact. Um, so we're excited about that, and hopefully next time we talk, I'll be able to Excellent. go to a little Very more exciting. Detail. Well, at Share Strength, we call that creating community wealth because it's different than personal wealth. But, you know, it's still you're a business person and you're creating wealth, but it's wealth that goes back into the community. That's so exactly right. can't wait to see what comes mm-hmm. of Me that. Too. And um, <laughs> fantastic. Uh, Dorothy, tell us about the um, Georgetown's Institute of Politics and Policy. So really excited to be a fellow this semester, going back to campus, back to school, which is great, um, and engaging with young people who are both at the undergraduate and the graduate level, um, focused on government and politics and uh, looking for ways that, uh, you know, we what are the ways that we think about public service and what does public service mean and, and, and how does it reinvigorate and uh, our democracy, basically. And so we've seen a lot of political enthusiasm over the last year and renewed commitment to civic engagement over the last uh, year um, and saw a lot of uh, turnout in the Virginia state elections. Um, and it's really talking to working with the next generation around uh, about what is public service and and what how can we inspire that next generation to step up to serve? And does it just mean elected office or what are the components um, around advocacy, um, community wealth building, as you mm-hmm. said, social entrepreneurship, National service, the idea of national service, we have an all-volunteer military have, and what does that mean in terms of commitment to country? You know, we talk a lot about civil rights in this country, but what are our civic responsibilities? And and so exploring those kinds of topics with the next generation is going to be a lot of fun for me, Um, and um, seeing what they're interested in. That's one of the cool things about this fellowship is um, you get a student strategy team, and they're going to help me develop a discussion topic a discussion outline for the next eight weeks and seeing what I think I know what's important to the next generation in terms of thinking about politics and public service, but what do they think? And I think I'm going to learn a lot more um, from them than, than I have to offer, uh, offer them, but it's going to be, um, I think I'm really looking forward to it. And I think that the experience of Virginia 
this is Georgetown University, remember, in our nation's capital, a lot of focus on federal government. Uh, but I'm interested in bringing that state perspective and the state and local perspective, which I think is often lost um, on folks when they're thinking about politics. And what I've seen in the work we've done is how impactful local government and state government mm-hmm. can be and is actually, I would argue, much more impactful in the daily lives of Americans um, than uh, what Congress is talking about today. And uh, so I think that encouraging young people to focus on local and state government as well as if they're interested in public service or politics um, is also a really important piece. You sound energized by this new challenge. Yes, I do. See how it unfolds. Um, And Lisa Davis for the No Kid Hungry campaign. Um, We've lost uh, Dorothy McAuliffe as First Lady of Virginia, but we've gained her as an ally in the rest of the country. How are we going to continue this work? Um, I think um, in a number of ways. And I was, you know, Dorothy made a really great point. Like a lot of times we all focus on the federal and on Congress. And there's a lot of dysfunction going on right now. And not a lot of positive changes are moving forward. It's the opposite at the state and local level. And so when I think about No Kid Hungry moving forward, I'm really excited by how many governors and first ladies and mayors and state legislators are really interested in tackling child hunger. And a lot of that is due to the great work that Dorothy did kind of in her role as First Lady of Virginia and through the National Governors Association. But there are a lot of opportunities, um, both in terms of getting legislation passed that helps make it easier to implement the programs locally, but also just in using the governors and the first ladies to raise awareness, to create a sense of urgency around these issues. And so when I look across all of the states that we're working in, I'm really excited by the opportunities, how many governors we do have that are engaged and and oftentimes newly engaged, the progress that we've built with superintendents, with school leaders, Um, and how we've been taking the lessons that we learned in Virginia and have been applying them to other states. Something as simple as peer-to-peer outreach, right, makes total sense. Um, School leaders are influenced by their peers who um, are facing some of the same challenges that they are. But in Virginia, with Dorothy's leadership, we really kind of maxed out some ideas on how to engage peers to talk to peers Mm -hmm. from the coffee breaks Mm -hmm. and the open houses at schools, Mm -hmm. convenings, um, developing a council of breakfast champions. Um, That really helped amplify our progress. And so that's something we're doing across most of our campaigns right now. So I know that um, it's not an easy road to getting to No Child Hungry, but I'm really excited about the progress that we've made in Virginia, what it means for other states and and kind of where we can go with all of our amazing supporters. Great. Well, Lisa Davis, thanks for not just leading our campaign, but being with us here today. Thanks, Billy. Um, Chef Jason Alley, um, restaurants, comfort, pasture, flora, and more to come. Thanks for being here and thanks for being a champion. Thanks so much for having me. It's been amazing. Uh, And Dorothy McAuliffe, who I've teased in the past that if she ever does become First Lady of the United States, her Secret Service code name is going to be Irresistible because (laughs) Dorothy is irresistible and nobody can say no to her. And as a result, many, many kids in the state of Virginia are getting fed today that weren't before. So back Dorothy, at you, Billy. For, thanks for being <laughs> thank with you. us. And, thank uh, you very much. Thanks for the three of you for contributing to uh, our recipe for Add Passion and Stir. I'm Billy Shore. Get closer to the problems that you care about. There's a famous photographer named Robert Kappa who once said, if your pictures are not good enough, you're not close enough. Well, in the social change space, getting close, bearing witness, going into the community, working with people directly, getting an understanding of what they need, 
that's often the precursor to really powerful transformational change. Don't just post, don't just preach. Get your hands dirty and get involved. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.